Gresham College presents Rare and Endangered Languages, an Introduction, by Professor Tim Connell, Honorary Fellow of Gresham College. Now, why languages? Well, languages are as old as humanity itself. Central to the development of civilization is the discovery of how to make fire or the move from hunter-gathering to agriculture. Archaeologists nowadays study everything from dry bones to the ruins of great cities. Different branches of archaeology keep on springing up, like dendro... I can't say it, dendro... I can't. Dendrochronology, thank you, everybody. Um, the study of tree rings and paleoclimatology, which I can find much easier to say, in order to reach back and find out about the earliest start of humanity. Now, their findings appear regularly on popular TV programmes, and people go wild about exhibitions at the British Museum. So it's rather odd, and I think discouraging, that the same level of interest isn't always shown towards languages, whether ancient or modern, remote, like Koro, which was recently discovered in a Himalayan valley, um, or, for that matter, the situation of languages in our own education system today. However, I hope that we will hear more from our speakers about languages, great, small, old, new, endangered, dead or extinct, and these are all of importance for a variety of very good reasons. It's not just a question of us teaching languages, so much as what languages have actually to teach us. And although the theme of language death and language loss are now reported more widely, there's not the sense of urgency that perhaps we ought to feel if we recognise that of the world's six to 7,000 languages, um, approximately half are unlikely to survive into the next century. The loss of language is actually heavily linked to biological diversity, the irony being that they're disappearing along with the natural habitats and the flora and fauna, which could actually give us clues to things like new medicines to cure a whole range of diseases. And, of course, languages which have concepts and phrases which might indicate to us what those plants actually are. So the question of sustainability and ecological interdependence is as valid for language as it is for other aspects of permanent damage to the environment. The sheer diversity found in different languages, even those located in proximity to each other, provides us with insights into the human brain and how it works, how the brain responds to its environment, to different social structures, and indeed how human beings react to each other. The study of a wide range of languages also provides insights into human thought processes. Consider the Amerindian tribe, who, to my envy, has no concept of time, as in the case of the Amandawa people of Brazil, only located in 1986. They've got no concept of weeks, months, or years. This demonstrates that humans don't, as you might imagine, have an inbuilt concept of the passage of time, which in turn will affect the way in which people refer to past, present, future, possibility, probability. It also suggests that the fortunate Amandawa have no need for phrases like burnout, uh, time poor, or rat race. They almost certainly don't use a term like 24-7, but then in our phonetic world, even that is changing. On the BBC, Radio 4, for heaven's sake, I heard someone use the phrase 724. I thought, blimey, what's 724? And of course I realised it was someone quite properly putting the English date first, Michael, and not the American. It shows how fast the language can move. By contrast, we will probably discover that the Amandawa do have words or phrases that reflect their own particular environment and the uh, way in which they live. And if you look at these marvellous books which collect 
unlikely words and phrases. You might come across a term like gagrom, comes from Indonesia, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it means to search for something underwater by using your feet. Now, isn't that wonderful? One single word. Now, I have seen people hunting anacondas in the swamps of Venezuela by virtue of similar uh, processes. I've not actually ever done it myself. But I do love the other one, gobre, which is to fall into a well without realising it. <laughs> now, I'm trying desperately to think of circumstances in which I have to say, ha, gobre! But there we are. It exists. It has been found. And it may well be true, as the, uh, the hymn reminds us, Crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms wax and wane. And there's certain examples of languages, ranging from Hittite to Quechua, which owed their expansion and their apparent success to being the imposed language of empire. And indeed, Arabic, English, French, Spanish, Portuguese have all spread well beyond their original borders in modern historical times for that reason. Lesser-known languages, perhaps, in this category include Nahuatl, the language of the Aztecs in Mexico, parts of Central America, and Quechua, spoken by the Incas in Peru. Both languages, of course, still with us today, though very much as languages of the vanquished. The case of Akkadian and Hittite from ancient times is interesting, as they indeed waxed and waned over a long period of time, uh, about 4,000 years in the case of Akkadian, up to the 2nd century AD, and from about 1800 BC to 1300 BC in the case of Hittite. I'm reading this out very carefully because I got that from Peter Austin's book. And if I, oh, it's, it's in yours as well, is it? Right, well, I'm being terribly careful about this. And Akkadian, quite interestingly, Akkadian was the official language of Babylon and Assyria. And it became used as a, it became used as a diplomatic language, which is rather nice. And Hittite has actually left us one of the first peace treaties in the world between ancient Egypt and the Hittite Empire, which was in part of modern-day Turkey. Importantly, it also left a significant literature. Writing, as we shall see, is an important element in the survival of a language. The Aztecs, of course, were rather limited with their pictograms, and the Incas got tied up in knots, quite literally, with their kipu, which was used essentially as a mnemonic. It's said that dialect is a language with an army and a navy. I think I mean a language is a dialect with an army and navy, actually, never mind. Rather more, a language needs to be a dialect with a library able to leave a record if it's to be maintained or even revived. And the many oral languages now in decline leave a challenge for linguistics and linguisticians and linguists in the field, as I hope we shall hear. So there are various grades of language in decline, <coughs> ranging from endangered to dead to extinct. Endangered is taken to mean that the number of people who use a particular language in daily life is not only falling, but like different species of animal, has reached a point where it's not self-sustaining. This can be caused by a number of factors, including ecological change, rivers drying up, for example, natural displacement, uh, sorry, natural disaster, displacement by a tsunami or earthquake, war and genocide, tragically, or simple everyday migration as younger people leave for a better life and older people begin to pass away. A significant proportion of the endangered languages today have gone way below the level of sustainability, as some kind of hinterland is probably also necessary to ensure that people have enough contacts to speak to on a regular basis. In the most extreme cases, the surviving speakers now number less than a dozen. And this is where so much work is being done to preserve their knowledge before it's too late, which I also hope is something we'll be hearing about. Even so, it's been argued that one language is being lost on average every two weeks. But then, of course, a language may be classified as either dead or extinct. The former, in the case of Latin or ancient Greek, 
is where the language is not in normal use but is widely studied for a range of purposes. Or it survived as a liturgical language like Coptic in Egypt. Extinct means that it's dead as a parrot and you've got to find some way of reviving it, possibly by some sort of, lingu some sort of linguistic excavation. There can be official policies, either to destroy a language or to preserve it or even to revive it. And um, at the negative end, we can take the example of a language called um, Teresami, which was spoken in the Kola Peninsula in the northwest of Russia. There are approximately two or three speakers left now because the language was banned by Stalin in schools in the 1930s. It was lost to the younger generations and, of course, it faded out. Um, then, in, if we take in this, almost the same period, General Franco, who I like to consider as a first cousin of Stalin, banned all regional languages in Spain following his victory in the Civil War in 1939. Children were punished for speaking Catalan in the school playground. In telephone boxes, there was a sign which said, forbidden to use any other language than Castilian. With the result, of course, that it drove the language underground, everyone spoke it at home, and even though newspapers didn't reappear in Catalan till 1978, and Barcelona, major centre for the book trade, uh, publishing in Catalan was forbidden for a very long time as well. But both Basque, the other main language, by no means the only one of the um, Iberian Peninsula, and Catalan, have had the advantage of a revival, what they call the Renaissance in the 19th century. Both had the advantage of being spoken over a very large area, which in the case of Catalan spreads into France and even across to Sardinia. Um, Catalan, of course, had the additional benefit that I've mentioned of having a major literature dating back to medieval times, so in reviving the language, there were plenty of sources to go back to see how the language actually worked. That hasn't stopped the emergence of dialects, of course, and adjoining languages in the case of Valencia and the languages of the Balearic Islands. In the early 1980s, there were the normalisation laws in Catalonia to bring Catalan back as an official language, and that can go to the extent that if you go to a museum in Barcelona today, the Catalans are very kindly... Um, put up all the signs about the exhibits in two languages, Catalan and English. Not, you'll observe, Spanish. And other parts of Spain have seen the uh, moral advantage to having your own local language. And in the case of Asturias, up in the Bay of Biscay, they're reviving a language called Bubli, which I would recognise as being a fairly close variety of medieval Spanish. So the EU today provides for mutual recognition and respect for all the languages of Europe, however small, and there are some which go down into the tens of thousands, and that, of course, raises the practical question of translating and interpreting services and how you find someone who is not only fluent in Maltese or Estonian, but a language other than English. And, in practice, this tends to reinforce English, French and German as the working languages of everyday life. And, of course, language policy may be restrictive, as in the case of the Académie Française, we cannot have a symposium on languages without laughing at the French. Um, they have spent a lot of time and effort in trying to control the flow of franglais. So much easier just to lift the word out of English and stick it into French. And there are some novel terms, some very nice choices. Walkman becomes le baladeur, from the French balader to stroll about, which I think is very elegant. But then for an iPad they selected the word ardoise, which is actually that piece of slate that we all learned to write on with a piece of chalk about 100 years ago, and that's just sort of a very odd image. And then when you get to a word like sederum 
for CD-ROM. Well, that's frankly cheating. So language policy can have unintended impacts. There's the case of um, Ayapaneco in the Mexican state of Tabasco. Um, Mexico in the 1980s, really good, great policy, combat social isolation, economic disadvantages of economic communities. You know what we'll do? We'll teach them all Spanish. With the result, of course, the children stopped speaking Ayapaneco. You wanted a job, you had to have Spanish. TV and radio, which started coming into small villages, all in Spanish. And the result is that today you have two speakers of Ayapaneco left, neither of whom get on with each other and refuse to speak it. And there are, however, linguisticians in place who are doing their best to record the language while they still can. So, to conclude, languages need to be nurtured. There are, of course, success stories close to home. The revival of Welsh is a well-studied example. There's growing interest in Manx and Cornish. But even in this country, I have to say, the study of languages is under threat as a result of misguided government policy that made languages optional in secondary schools at the age of 14. This has been offset by the introduction of foreign language learning at primary level, as is, of course, customary now in most European schools. Um, but enormous damage has been done, especially at university level, where dozens of language departments have been cut back, reduced, and even shut. And that indicates that constant vigilance is needed if language is to be recognised and understood for the important part, aspect of personal and professional life that they are. Um, legend has it amongst our students at City University, they come back shaking from their first in interview in the square mile. The tiebreaker question is, how many languages have you got? Not, do you speak French? So one for the um, planners and organisers to think about. Now, that, I hope, sets a scene. I have been told off in the past for actually stealing the thunder of all our speakers by saying what they were going to say. So I hope they're not going to mention Ayapaneco or normalisation laws in Catalonia. And I'm very pleased um, to introduce Dr Nicholas Osler, who is going to tell us why we should protect endangered languages. Nicholas. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.